0: I'm Brad from Heinemann, and today on the podcast, we have a special conversation about the complex nature of education, reading, and phonics instruction, and the pitfalls of all or nothing thinking. Jennifer Saravalo is a renowned literacy consultant and the author of the New York Times bestseller, The Reading Strategies book, as well as The Writing Strategies book, Teaching Reading in Small Groups, Teaching Writing in Small Groups, and Connecting with Students Online, among others. Jen is joined by Wiley Blevins, an early reading specialist and author with experience teaching elementary school in both the United States and South America. He was director of special projects for Scholastic in New York City, and has written several books on phonics and reading. Jen and Wiley started their conversation by sharing their observations on the current state of teaching and education.
1: Wiley, thank you so much for agreeing to have a conversation with me today. I've uh, studied a lot of your work, most recently your, your Fresh Look at Phonics, um, but I also have on my shelf some of your work around nonfiction, and then I also have some of the writing that you've done for children. So it's really an honor to meet you, and I, I'm really grateful that you are taking time to have a conversation with me.
2: It's so great to meet you too, finally.
1: So I was thinking we could start off with a quote from the beginning of A Fresh Look at Phonics, Education for complex reasons is always particularly vulnerable as a profession to all or nothing thinking and neck bending pendulum swings. The reality is that explicit phonics instruction when done effectively is a transitory phase of learning to read and never keeps students from reading and engaging with high quality trade books. So I loved that quote um, and I wanted to ask you what you're seeing in classrooms today maybe pandemic teaching aside, but that um, gives you cause for concern and what should teachers be aiming for instead?
2: Yeah, we're in a, a big transition time. As you know, we're having this national conversation called the science of reading and there's a lot of debate out there and it gets very heated on both sides and what have you. And so, you know, while I appreciate the conversation and the debate, I think researchers have the luxury of talking about this for years, but classroom teachers have to go into the classroom tomorrow and land the plane. (laughs) So they need our best advice. The thing that gets me panicked is there's so much content around phonics in kindergarten or first grade, it's a very short window of opportunity to get it done quickly, efficiently, and to do it right. And so I wanna have the best resources in place for the teachers I work with, and I want them to use them to their maximum potential.
1: The, the concern that you have that things are out of balance, I'm seeing that too. I think in some places there's uh, just a light touch of phonics, maybe uh, you know, occasionally woven into a guided reading lesson or something like that. And then in other places, sometimes it feels like there's so much phonics and a lot of the phonics, my big, one of my big concerns is that the phonics instruction tends to be a lot of whole class, everyone gets the same thing. So as someone who believes a lot in responsive teaching and in the power of differentiated instruction and not wasting kids time and giving them what they need. But I think one of the things a lot of teachers are, are struggling with is how to, how to do that, right? How to make what they know is important, right? Responsive instruction, differentiated instruction to make that happen during phonics time and to do it in a way that's very efficient Mm -hmm. so that it doesn't sacrifice things like the read aloud or your content studies or the other parts of the day that are so critical. So a a couple things. One,
2: I get asked the question all the time, how much time should I spend on phonics? And for me, that's not the right question. The right question is what do I do during the time I have on phonics? And so for me, if you have 15 minutes, 20 minutes, 30, 45, it doesn't matter as long as the bulk of that time, at least half is spent applying the skill to reading and writing. One of the issues I have with a lot of the fine instruction I see is it's very isolated sort of skill and drill work kind of work. It's in the application where the learning sticks. If we don't spend more time applying those skills, we aren't gonna get students where they need to be fast enough because that's how we get them to mastery quickly so they can then transfer the skill to all reading and writing. So that's one issue. Another issue when you're talking about sort of the the book based and the very random, it's very important to me that we have a phonic scope and sequence and that once we introduce a skill, we hang on to it for a very long time. I have this mantra with the coaches here in New York City, no more one and done now one and just begun. Because it's really if we spend a week on a skill or a couple of days on a skill, it's just the beginning of the exploration and people don't realize, I think, how long it takes for some of our children to really master a phonics skill in both reading and spelling. We can get children to be able to read these words fairly efficiently, but then we have children who can't spell because we haven't extended that learning in the work. So phonics doesn't have enough, you know, it has the decoding in place in, in many instances, but not enough of the encoding work. So we're not doing the dictation. We're not doing the word building. We're not doing the word sorts and having conversations. So that that's an imbalance that I see. Now, in terms of teaching at whole group and small group, this is where phonics gets really difficult. We need phonics to happen on these two tracks. We need all children to be exposed to grade level content when it comes to phonics. And the reason I say this is at one point, the thinking was that we would assess our children and place them along the phonics continuum. So what happened in reality, what we saw in some schools here in New York City was that Children who were in first grade, for example, who had mastered some of the skills from kindergarten were put back in that scope and sequence and moved very slowly. And then when they finished first grade, there was a whole bucket of content that they weren't exposed to, and they went to second grade even further behind. So what does that mean? That means our whole group lessons have to be more differentiated. I work with teachers, whatever curriculum they're using, we look at when we're doing our blending, how do we differentiate that so that our students who aren't there yet get some value out of that? So that's where I added my review and repetition cycle. How do we do some differentiation, some enrichment for students who already know that? But then during small group is where you really hit it. So if there are students who haven't mastered some of those skills, you are finding where those holes are, those deficits, and you are plugging in those with high impact routines. You're doing blending. You're doing dictation. You're reading and writing uh, stories that contain those skills. If you have above-level students, we often ignore these children. We can move them further in the scope and sequence and during small group do a couple lessons a week and really accelerate their progress. So for the above level, we can do enrichment during whole group time and acceleration during small group and really move them.
1: Are you seeing it like that teachers have in mind the scope and sequence that you follow through whole class teaching while still providing multiple points of access during whole class instruction, but then your small group time is used to either remediate or accelerate depending on what you're noticing. And, and ideally, there's also some assessments built in here so that we know if kids are getting it or not, right? Yes. And so I created my own assessments
2: because I, I think sometimes we get too complex I need really simple tools that keep me on track and help me manage what my students are doing. So I have, I created these cumulative assessments that I use, so, and I can't assess every child every week. So I take just a small group of students and it's a word list and there are some words from this week, some words from the previous week and I go back about five weeks and it's just a simple word list that my students are reading. They get a check if it's accurate and a check if it's automatic. So, you know, maybe week one, the skill is at the top of the assessment. Week four, it's in the middle, and then week six is at the end. So I'm looking at skill over time, okay? And so if they get lots of checks, they're accurate that first week, which they should because we're working on it. It's fresh in their memories. But five or six weeks later, those checks start to disappear. That means the learning is starting to slip away. It's starting to what I call decay, And that happens a lot in phonics instruction if we don't do enough repetition enough work enough application after that initial introduction so what that does is in a very short period of time i can determine if my children have mastery or if that learning is decaying and i can jump on it and fix it before it becomes a learning hole
1: yeah i totally agree with you and i I think it, it um it requires a tremendous amount of content knowledge on the part of the teacher as well to be responsive in that way and to, and to, to know what you're looking for and to be able to provide the small group intervention and in, whether it's to accelerate or to remediate depending on what you're seeing. So yes, it's the tools and it's also hopefully professional development to help teachers really understand this well. I wanna go back to the timing. I, I hear you on, there's no, there's no right number of minutes. And I think depending on where you're, where you're working and what kinds of skills the kids are coming in with and how quickly they're picking up new concepts, you know, mm-hmm. the amount of time you spend each day is gonna vary. But I did think it was really interesting that you said half that time would be in an application. And you're talking about the importance of small group in addition to whole group. So I'm wondering if the other half, like what balance of that is small group versus whole group?
2: Yeah, so I'm talking whole group whatever I do, whole group, half of that should be an
1: application.
2: So if I'm pulling for a small group, it's still going to be a lot of reading that's going on. And it's still going to be, I might be targeting specific aspects of the skill that the students need work on. So if they're, they have the reading pretty much in place, but the spelling's really lagging behind. I'm gonna do more dictation with the sound boxes and rebuilding the words. I'm gonna do word building, which is a very powerful activity with the letter cards. And they go like from SAT to MAT and MAT to MAT, and they become very flexible in their their knowledge of those skills. So I'm gonna be focusing on those things, but those activities can be really great follow-up activities to what you read. You know, you can pull out some of those words and start there and build off of that. But I still want them to do reading in both.
1: And there's, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of uh, conversation right now about how all kids should get a certain amount of phonics instruction, but that there's going to be some children mm-hmm. who need additional on top of what's provided in the classroom. What are you seeing as a way that schools are managing this? Maybe just talk about the, the schools in, in New York City to provide kids the support that they need.
2: Yeah. A lot of it depends on the intensity of the program and the scope and sequence that's expected. You know, first grade is very intense. You have to master short vowels with blends and digraphs, long vowels, complex vowels, art control. You know, it's a lot of content, and so for some children, it's just too much, too fast. And so that's where the tier two small group really comes into play. And if you do both really well, you won't have a lot that have to have tier three intervention, but you will have some. And so that that in and of itself is a whole different part of the day where you are digging in even more deeply, slowing it down, and giving them more more practice, more repetition. I find that there isn't for those children enough repetition in most core programs, enough exposures uh, to the the decoding opportunities, and so
1: on. So, what does independent reading look like in in a classroom that you think is doing things well, <laughs> right, that you've got this explicit phonics instruction, you've got a whole group, you've got a small group. I've heard you already say that you wanna make sure that the texts that kids are reading are ones that they can be successful with, that makes mm-hmm. sense. And decodable texts provide a certain kind of scaffold that mm-hmm. you're presenting kids with texts that have the words in them that they've learned to decode. Is that what they're reading during independent reading? Is it a balance of decodable and other things? Here's the problem that's happening right now is most of the
2: teachers who are getting phonics materials in their classroom come with one set of decodables. So they might have one or two books a week. It's not enough for kids to read. And so in how decodable text is, is solely based on the relationship, uh, the books to the scope and sequence. So teachers and schools are struggling with getting enough books in kids' hands So, you know, during independent reading time, you may guide students to reread some books with previously taught skills to develop fluency, but you can have other books for them to choose from. I mean, sometimes kids just like reading a simple pattern story that's a lot of fun and that's okay. And I think people are getting really extreme about that. Like, oh my gosh, that, you know, they'll develop a horrible habit if you let them choose a, a very simple, fun little book. And the reality is once you start teaching phonics as a system and they start getting skills under their belt. They start weaning themselves from really controlled text. They start having the confidence to attack other texts, and they start figuring out sound spellings before they were taught. If It's generative if you do it right. I remember very distinctly when I first learned how to read. It was in first grade, Mrs. Wershaw. We had the Dick and Jane readers, which were high-frequency readers, and she gave us a phonics workbook, and she taught us our letters and sounds. And it felt like a puzzle to me. They're these strange squiggles, and by themselves or in combination, they stand for sounds. And I was very curious about this. And I remember going to church, and I heard all these strange words, thee, thou, doeth, that I had never heard anyone speak in real life. And so I paid attention to those words, and they all had T-H in them. And so I figured out how to pronounce T-H before Mrs. Warshaw taught. That's what you want to start happening. In first grade classrooms, in some of the schools that I've worked in, around mid-year, children are just grabbing books. And they feel confident to attack it. And they will ask you if there are certain words they don't have, they have difficulties with, and you can point out a pattern at point of use and what have you. And they really start running with it. So we don't hide books from kids. You know, we give them tools to practice those skills and get to fluency. And the more skills they get in the, belt, the easier it is for them to tackle texts that are less and less controlled because they have more skills under the belt. They're ready to do that challenge.
1: I think that's so important what you just said this you know there I think there is among some people a fear that if we don't control the text so much that they're 100% accurate in applying all their phonics skills and those are the only books that they can read that we're doing kids a disservice when really there's quite a a lot of research around the importance of volume of reading, and you know, I read uh, David Share's uh, self-teaching hypothesis yeah. paper, um, which is a I, what I understood to be exactly what you're what you're describing. That kids will teach themselves. Oh, yeah. As they encounter more words, as long as there's not so many that it's overwhelming. Some of these early pattern books, or like Brown Bear, Brown Bear, or alphabet books, or even really beautiful nonfiction texts that have great photographs in them and they can read some of the text on the page. Um, And my my thinking is all of those, any of those could make for great independent reading and teachers can do conferences around comprehension. They could do conferences around reading habits. They can do, it doesn't always have to be just about decoding. Would you agree with that? Yeah, and there's some big misconceptions about
2: decodable text that I'm hearing. I mean, you know, this is here again, the black and white and sort of the loud voices being extreme. I've heard also people say, well, Decodable texts need to be 100% controlled for the first two years of schooling. So if you had text that was 100% decodable, it really doesn't make sense for a couple reasons. Number one, there's no research that says that. There's actually no research to support a percentage. There have been recommendations that the majority of words to give students enough practice, and people have determined how they define majority. In fact, the two states, California and Texas, have defined it as 75 or 80% because they have state adoption reading criteria. So that that's the guide. But what that means, and if you look at their criteria, what they're saying is that these little books, three out of every four words, on average, children should be able to sound out, so they have lots of opportunities to practice their phonics skills. But one out of every four, they can't. It's a high frequency word, it's a story word, and people don't realize that there are other words in these decodables that we have to teach children to handle, to tackle. Um, And so when I hear people say 100% controlled, it doesn't make sense because the decodable text that's being created now that all schools are using is not 100% controlled. There's no research that says it needs to be. The other thing is that logically, if I were to show you a list of the 200 most frequently used words in English, The most frequent word is the, which is irregular. You cannot sound it out. If I go through that list, you're going to see was, you're going to see does, you're going to see they, you're going to see give, live. There's a whole set of words that children are going to encounter in lots and lots of text. In the first two years of school, they have to master those words too, or they won't get to reading fluency. We can't ignore those words. So people who say these extreme things forget that these words have a high impact in terms of our understanding and accessing what we read. We have to do both. And that's where the research community needs to do better. We need to look more deeply at the types of words in decodable text. Uh, We may never solve the percentage issue, but I think one of the things in decodable text is there aren't enough of these most frequent words and children don't have enough opportunities to use them. because when publishers are creating, they're they're so focused on that 80% control that those other words are pulled out. That's why you get these sentences that don't sound like English. You know what I mean? So we need to stop that. We need to be okay with the text being 70% controlled and have sound like English and have those high frequency words that children absolutely need because they have high impact in terms of their reading. And there are people who who are looking at that, like Freddie Hebert's work is looking at the, the kinds of words and the repetition of words and so on, and that work needs to continue. You know, So right now we have a tool that isn't there yet. It needs some improvements, some enhancements and some work on it, but uh, I keep pushing to make that tool better. And I, I, I have a problem with being so tied to a certain percentage and, and ignoring the fact that these have to be stories that make sense and they have to have the right kinds of words in that.
1: Yeah, I don't, I don't know if you've seen the uh, website called Beyond Decodables. Nell Duke was involved in it in some, in some manner. They're aiming for, you know, around that same percentage of decodable, but also content rich and also yeah. mimicking what our natural language sounds like. So it doesn't sound odd and using words that show up in English a lot. And I hope that continues. We our children deserve that kind of context. Think about when you're first starting to read.
2: You're taking your oral language and connecting it to print. So it needs to be tightly connected. Now, imagine you're an English learner and the first books you give aren't English. <laughs> they don't
1: right. That's a <laughs> word. So I, I'm going to shift gears here and I want to ask you about something that I get questions about constantly. And a, a common practice in a lot of classrooms is. To take running records, to listen to kids read out loud, record what they say, and then to go back and analyze what they've what they've read, and to figure out what's going on, like when they're making mistakes, why; when they're doing a lot of repeating, why; when they're reading correctly, why, um, and use that as a tool to inform instruction. Yeah. Running records have sort of become, I think, they're a little misunderstood. The analysis of them is a little bit misunderstood, but. Um, I still think there's tremendous value in listening to kids read, recording what they read and analyzing them. So I'm just, I'm gonna leave it open-ended and ask you to just yeah. talk about what, what role does that play and what should we be looking at and looking for um, in a child's connected text reading? It is
2: an incredibly valuable tool. Where people get tripped up with their writing records is the coding about the different cues. And they've gotten so focused on that that they've forgotten the value and the the impact of a teacher really understanding and listening for children's errors and using that information to really target their specific needs. So a running record for me is just listening to a child read, recording your observations, and taking that information to fine tune your instruction. They have a valuable place. You know, we can have conversations about what kind of text would be best for a running record. Maybe the texts that are being used now, there, there aren't enough words with the skills children have been taught. So they're not teachers aren't getting as valuable information. That could be an issue that people have concerns about. So if you're doing a running record with a level book, Do a running record with a a decodable at that same point of the year and see what you see. Um, I I like just watching children uh, attack attacks and see what they do. You know, I I say this all the time. If you give a, a kindergartner a book, Do they put their finger on the first word and start working through? Or do they open the book and just start scanning the pictures for every little piece of information because they know they can't access the words? That tells me a lot about what they think reading is and what behaviors they've developed. And I need to act on that information as well. So observing children read and listening to them is absolutely essential and one of the key pieces of formative assessment information we need to gather.
1: I'm so glad to hear you say that because I I worry about all the assessments becoming computerized or having the only assessments that we use be isolated word lists. There's so much that happens when you watch a child read and watch what they work through, watch where their eyes go, watch you know, watch watch them repeat themselves and correct themselves and try to puzzle out why they did that, what they were noticing, or even ask them what did what made you go back and read that again and and listen to their to their thinking. Because I think that allows us to be responsive and give kids what they need. Yeah, I have a
2: little form that I use that has, on one side, it just has some observations I make about the behaviors, and I can record some things that I see. And on the other side, I have the phonics, scope, sequence. And I can circle skills that I seem to be struggling with or record some words
1: that I can analyze later. It helps to have some like guiding questions or guiding look-fors, yeah. Yeah. especially when teachers are with, you know, and I, I used to teach in New York City. I had 32 kids in my class. So like, the, no the, the that's for New York. <laughs> that, was, that was a capped class. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I, I had to have quick ways yeah. to be able to um, collect the information, evaluate it, and then move on and turn it into teaching. I think that's the other, you know, potential shortfall of a lot of the running records that are happening in classrooms across the country is that they're done with the intent of scoring kids or getting a level or benchmarking, rather than using them as real, rich formative data. You know, as a literacy-focused person, one thing I always have in mind is teachers are also teaching math and science and social studies. I used to have to teach the third my third graders how to play the recorder. You know, like we're t- yes. we have so many different things that we're trying to learn. Yeah, be good at and be able to be responsive around that any tool that helps make that decision making faster uh, right at your fingertips and be able to respond in the moment I think is a really helpful tool. Yeah my first year of teaching I had to teach music and I can't sing so it was painful. So <laughs> and I can't play the recorder and neither could my third graders so I'm not very good at teaching that. There, there's been a lot of music appreciation. <laughs> there you go. You know something else that that I think is a hot topic right now is the the, the challenge with translating research into practice, yeah. there's these things that researchers can can prove and show in a laboratory setting. Uh, I was just reading this piece by um, uh, by Seidenberg that talks about the gaps between the the research in classroom research, what actually works with children in a diverse classroom versus what we can do in a lab. Shanahan had a piece in the recent ILA about the same challenge of of translating um, and the need for more classroom-based research. But in the meantime, there's people like us who are trying to say, well, here's what the research says. Let me go try this in a classroom. Here's what it looks like. What are you seeing as some ways to overcome this hurdle, this divide between research and practice?
2: Yeah, so one of the roles that I've had throughout the years when I've done consulting with publishers is to test out materials in classrooms here in New York. And so that's been the best test. And too often materials are created in sort of a, a vacuum by people who maybe haven't been in a classroom in a long time. And, and teachers can sniff that out and then they have to make the modifications and so on. So that, that's, that's a, a serious issue. I think really strong publishers will not only do some testing the materials before they publish it, but once it's published to continue testing it and analyzing and revising. I think people don't realize that. A lot of programs get better and better over time because there's concentrated effort and a lot of data that comes back in and the great publishers will use that and make those, those fine tunings. The other thing about research and about translating is when it gets translated to the classroom or even to the publishers, it's very surface knowledge understanding. And one of the things I've seen so often in education is people run with that surface knowledge. And if you don't have a deep knowledge, you don't understand the limitations of that work. And you start applying it in ways that are really problematic. And then a good idea becomes a bad idea because of the way it's being implemented. And then people just divorce themselves from the whole idea. Can you give an example? Is there something that comes to mind? Well, I think the text is a great example of that. Mm -hmm. And People were talking about decodable text and having the criteria and the 80% and what have you. What I saw right away was publishers being competitive. A publisher would say, you know, we met the criteria. Ours is 80%. Another person would say, ours are 95%. We're better. Buy ours. And then I'd look at those stories and it was gibberish. So it wasn't a better tool. So they didn't understand that, you know, these texts have to, yeah, they have to have a lot of fine practice, but they need to make sense. They need to be engaging. They need to be worth reading and rereading and talking about it and writing about. It. They just thrown out all the criteria and they'd forgotten about the other kind, of, you know, it just, and so I would encounter teachers who were like, I hate the code text. I'm not using those in my classroom. And I'd be like, why? I have a great set that I use. And then they would show me theirs and I'd be like, oh my God, you know, these look, awful. They look like I drew it in the basement with the lights out and they don't make sense. So I understand why you hate it. It's a bad tool.
1: Yeah, I agree with you. I will end with this. Here's another quote from your from your opening chapter in your new book on phonics. We have a habit in education of taking an idea, falling in love with it, and digging in our heels even when there's evidence that our original idea needs some modification. I very much agree with your sentiment that um that we need to be Listening to new things and revising. Um, what do you see are some of the obstacles?
2: Yeah. It's that's happening. For me, part of the excitement of being in education is you're always learning. Like, there's nobody that knows everything. I totally agree. I anyone, totally agree. Anyone who acts like it, you don't listen to them <laughs> because there's nobody that knows everything. I think it's great that you've dug into the, the early phonics and you have so many people who listen to your work that you are continuing that conversation, and helping them make that instruction more impactful. You know, when I do my presentations, the last couple of years, I've been starting with a, a family story. Uh, I don't know if you know this, but I come from a very rural community in West Virginia and I come from what I call legacy of illiteracy. My grandparents on my father's side never learned to read or write. So I grew up seeing all the obstacles they faced. I grew up seeing my grandmother Shane. We'd sit in a restaurant and she would hold the, the menu upside down and she would insist that she'd be the last person to order. And I couldn't figure it out. And finally my sister said, don't you get it? She's listening to what we say and she's ordering what we say. So pick something grandma likes so she can enjoy her meal. And with no. like my mom's side, my grandmother only went to school to the fifth grade because you had to wear, you had to go into town and she didn't think she had fancy enough clothes. So I didn't grow up in a home with books. So I, what we do to teach children to read, I always describe it as a gift because it's a gift that once you give it, it can never be taken away and will forever transform a child's life. It literally opens up the world of possibility. I grew up in a home where that, those doors were shut. And so I think it's incredibly exciting to be able to give that gift to children. But it's a huge responsibility to do it right and to do it well. And the best teachers are always striving to do it better and to know more. And so we need to just keep pushing forward in our understanding. And sometimes that requires us to confront some things that we, we like and we've been doing that aren't as effective. And we need to change those practices for the benefit of our students. It's not about us. Not a, and I think some researchers will really stick their, their, you know, feet in the cement because their reputations are around that. So when people are willing to say, "Hey, there's more that I that I'm learning, and I want to help all the people who follow my work move forward," we need to we need to be supportive of that. And so that's what you're doing. And, that's why I wanted to have this chat with you so that we can continue that conversation because it's just the beginning of a lot of conversations these teachers will have
0: and they're important conversations. Our thanks to Jen and Wiley for their time today. You can learn more about Jen and her work at heinemancom slash Jennifer Saravallo and follow her on Twitter at J Saravallo. You can learn more about Wiley's work at WileyBlevins.com and follow him on Twitter at WBN find a transcript of this episode at blog.heinemann.com. The Heinemann Podcast is a production of Heinemann Publishing. It is produced and edited by Steph George. Sound mixing by Steph George. Our creative producer is Lauren Audette. And our executive producer is me, Brett Whitmarsh. To learn more about the Heinemann Podcast, visit blog.heinemann.com. Thanks for listening.